Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, episode 82. Um, but I hope we just, uh, I hope in the next five, if not less, we really embrace more on the communication science and human dynamics and sociology of coaching. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. This is the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon, your host, and today we are talking to a guest who's been on the podcast before, Brett Bartholomew, a multifaceted performance coach, consultant, keynote speaker, and the author of Conscious Coaching. Brett, welcome back. Yeah, I appreciate it, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, back in season two, when you were on the podcast, the first time you, you talked about behavioral and motivational aspects of what drives people, specifically coaches and athletes and how to interact effectively and productively with others. Um, this is the essentially the definition of coaching. Um, in strength and conditioning, we're always adapting to best serve our athletes and institutions. Brett, one thing I really like from hearing you speak and some of your work that I've, that I've read is you present a very rounded view of strength and conditioning as a profession. And that speaks to the learning process um, that all coaches go through. So um, I'd like to start by asking you, um, you know, where you're based out of and what you're working on currently, and then we'll kind of get into some of those topics, career development, and uh, some of the things you'd like to talk about. Yeah, I've been based out of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, just north of Atlanta for about the past four years, currently working on all things uh, Art of Coaching, which is our company really focused on helping leaders in general, not just strength coaches, enhance their ability to communicate, connect, build lasting buy-in from a behavioral standpoint with those they serve. And specifically doing that by helping people become a more adaptable communicators, learning more about human behavior, all of which ties into my background in strength and conditioning and life in general. Uh, my background in SNC really started because I was hospitalized and uh, you know it, it made me realize that subject matter expertise isn't enough. We had nurses, doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists that couldn't really reach us as patients. And a lot of times it was just everybody kind of fit into one model. And you know I was in pretty dire health circumstances. So I used strength and conditioning long-term to kind of get myself out of that situation started to continue down that path because I was fascinated by the body. Uh, long story short, always been fascinated with human dynamics, got my master's degree in motor learning, attentional focus, cueing, saw what effect cueing could have on human performance. That made me want to dive even more deeply into nuances of communication. So now I'm getting my doctorate in essentially what is uh, focused on power dynamics, communication, ethical uses of influence, persuasion, and how those can drive better leadership outcomes uh, in many different facets. So we're really trying to spearhead being the educational component of those things. Our main, our main communities are the performance community, the tactical community, and now working more and more with corporations who uh, have high stakes, as you can imagine. They have thousands, if not tens of thousands of employees. On average, they spend about $135 billion a year on leadership development that really hasn't helped because a lot of it has been more trust falls, coal walking, as opposed to really understanding the messy realities of leadership. So that's what we focus on, the messy realities of coaching leadership and the fact that it's, it's much deeper than we've been led to believe. Wow. So, you know, everybody in this field, and, and I really embrace this, everybody has a unique path, right? And, and there's no cookie cutter way of becoming a strength coach, but talking about how a hospitalization experience kind of pushed you towards this field. That's, 
there. It's very unique. Um, and, you know, I look at your background, it's unique that you've worked in tactical, you've worked uh, in the team setting and also the private sector. Can you break down some of the different challenges that you see or have faced in these different areas of the field? Yeah, I think we really create more differences than there are. Uh, you know, I, I still have yet to find a field that inherently looks for so many differences as opposed to seeking commonalities as ours. You know, I, I, we have a veterinarian up the street for us. We live in a fairly rural part of Northern Atlanta. And I asked him, you know, have you ever worked for a larger clinic and now he owns his own. And I'm like, you know, what differences he goes really, man, it's, it's more or less the same, you know, at certain levels, you have bureaucracy, you have things like that. But I think our field in a desire to almost separate itself and make itself more complex on the outside creates all these things. So of course there's little things and, and sometimes big things when the team setting, you're, you're going to of course have egos dynamics. It's not just you as a strength and conditioning coach. It's how you play along with medical, how you deal with, you know, higher level leadership, the integration of those things. Um, but that's also no different than if you own your own facility, how you deal with external stakeholders, power brokers, whether that's parents, members of the community, what have you. Um, and even in the tactical side of things, right? That's, it's been well documented, all the different levels of leadership there. So, you know, we can, we can talk differences and they're certainly there, but I think there's far more commonalities than there are. And I think that's where our field needs to kind of go from here on out is, that, you know, it, it just troubles me when I hear these people. And I remember my first experience going to a clinic and seeing these two coaches talking and they were hitting it off, a lot of rapport, and then all of a sudden, one coach in the team setting found out that that other coach was in the private sector, and it was like they were done with them. You know, they didn't want to talk to him because, you know, I don't know, maybe they felt like they couldn't help him get a job or they couldn't help him do this. But, you know, and I used to be in that. I mean, the whole idea for me and, and bouncing around like I did is I wanted experience in the team side, in the private side, in all these areas so that you could, just like athletes, Eric, would we ever tell them to specialize at nine years old? No, we want them to get experiences in different dynamics. So I felt like I wanted to be pretty well-rounded, get exposed to all those things. And even though I certainly had biases, yeah, I used to think the private sector was all personal training. Well, until I landed a job in the private sector and ran six to eight groups with myself, maybe one intern and 40 athletes. Where in the team setting, sure, you'd have a room of, you know, 50 plus, but you'd also have five other assistants and GAs. So I think, you know, there's more commonalities than there are differences, but it all deals with people, bureaucracy some level of those things and how you can get those things out of the way so that you can really focus targeted communication on behalf of the athlete to help them achieve what they need to achieve. That takes your programming at a higher level. That takes your leadership at a higher level and relationships. Yeah. You, you talk a lot about improving communication structures within our field. What are some of the areas of strength and conditioning that you love or that really just drew you towards this field and kind of made it your life's work? Yeah, I mean, simply put, I had to go to this field, otherwise I was going to die. You know, I was 96 pounds in a hospital suffering from depression and an eating disorder. And, you know, at 14 or 15 years old, the only information I had on how to train came from Men's Health, Muscle and Fitness, Flex Magazine, Arnold's Bodybuilding Encyclopedia, things like that, right, where um, I kind of engulfed it all and took it to extremes, uh, you know, to kind of get away from a lot of my friends that were doing drugs and my parents who were going through a divorce. I trained and did everything I was lifting you know, three times a day and, and running like crazy. I was eating fat free, low carb, everything like that. You know, you're taking all these supplements, you know, and fat burners and protein. And I had no idea what I was doing. It's not like now where we have a plethora of resources, you know, like I was just a, a, a super intense kid that wanted to escape some of these ugly realities that I was dealing with as an adolescent and training was a drug. 
And so I had to learn the ins and outs of it. I mean, it's been well documented in my book and others. You know, I eventually got two books when I was hospitalized and I had to hide them. I literally had to steal them and hide them in the hospital because they wouldn't allow this type of reading material. It was Mike Arthur's Complete Conditioning for Football and it was Nancy Clark's Sports Nutrition Guidebook. And I had to hide them in the book jackets of like leadership books because the hospital wouldn't let you take that kind of stuff in. And so I started learning a little bit more about proper nutrition, exercise, what have you. And when I got out, you know, within a year, had gained 50 some odd pounds. Um, ironically, ended up getting in muscle and fitness as a success story because uh, I had overcome just orthorexia and all this stuff. And then I was like, wow, you know, there's so much bad information out there. I would love to be somebody who takes information and uses it and teaches it in a practical way to people to help them overcome their own issues. Because that's how I look at strength and conditioning. Training is nothing more than a tool to teach other people what they're capable of, right? That's why I don't really go down these rabbit holes anymore of like, oh, double leg, single leg. Oh, what about this sprint progression versus that? Like, at the end of the day, there's so many other issues we got to solve before we even get to that point um, because there's so much misinformation out there. So that's how it changed my life is I got into it um, literally because it was a means of, of it saving my life. So- so in your opinion, is that where we fall short as a field, like misinformation, following the trends, keeping, uh, keeping up with the Joneses in terms of what, other, what our opponents, what other teams are doing, and not really focusing on our internal process? Is that uh, sort of the foundation of what you, what you preach? I think we fall short in the fact that we, we have become just, we fetishize training and we forgot the psychological and interrelational piece. We spend so time assessing the history of an athlete's body, but very little of an athlete's mind, how they work, all these things. I mean, we, we still have weight rooms where people say, hey, we're going to war, gentlemen, load up on the squat. I think those are very cheap motivational tactics, and I've been guilty of them too. This is, this is me calling myself out, past versions of myself out as much as it is anything else. But like, you know, I, I, I've heard every excuse of, well, I have all these athletes. I, I don't know how to do that. And I can't communicate this. And, you know, we act like it – on one end, we say we're the hardest working field in the, or uh, we're the hardest working individuals. They're first in, last out, servant-based leadership, but we tend to stay in our comfort zone, right? We're lifelong learners and all these things, as long as things are free, cheap, easy, and they have to do with lifting. But if we get in the social domain, we come up with so many excuses. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard, hey man, great book, but I coach 50 some odd athletes or 100, I can't do that. Well, the funny thing is, is I've never worked one-on-one -on -one outside of personal training early on. And right now during COVID-19, these, all of these processes were created when I was working in large groups and when working with large groups, a coach that says they can't apply communication strategies with large groups is somebody that shouldn't be a coach because communication is the foundation of coaching, right? Like we can all drive an adaptation without fancy equipment. You can't coach without communication. So that just doesn't make sense to me. What I, so I see a lot of laziness there. I also see a lot of coaches who think they're already good at communication, um, even though they don't evaluate themselves on it. Um, I'll put it simple, Eric, here's the stats out of, and this is as of 2016, out of 285 coach development programs that currently exist, less than 6% focus on interpersonal skills, less than 2% focus on intrapersonal skills. So that's where we're like, think about all the asymmetries we talk about, man, what a dangerous asymmetry there is in coach development. So that's where we're looking to really uh, fill that void at Art of Coaching is 
we want to create, we want to be amongst the premier guides of coach development in that space, the interpersonal and intrapersonal space. Nice. So, so Brett, who are your biggest mentors or influencers that helped shape this, um, this topic area that you focus on, but also within the strength and conditioning field um, that people you connect with, people you follow? Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, uh, like in this, like, are you talking about in the context of behavior or just strength and conditioning? I think, I think both are beneficial. Um, but you know, yeah, I mean, there, there, I didn't think there's really anybody talking about this stuff in strength and conditioning, at least in a way that's overt. I'm sure obviously people always say, Oh, I've been having this conversation for years, or I could have written this. Well, good. Then put, put that stuff out there. I think strength and conditioning has leaned on the, the great work of people like John Maxwell and things like that for a long time in leadership. And those books are great. But again, they don't really dive into psychology, human behavior, and the messy realities. So that's why we're doing that. You know, on the psychology side, you know, I mean, man, like everybody from Richard Thaler, um, I look at, uh, you know, everybody from Kahneman uh, and Tversky. We look at people like, uh, I mean, even Young's work in like dark-sided tactics and archetypes. Um, you look at people like uh, uh, folks out of here. Let me pull up the name. There's a great research article I actually wanted to talk to. Uh, Illuminating the dark side of leadership. Andrew Cruikshank and Dave Collins out of University of Central Lancashire. They do phenomenal work. Um, you look at so many people inside and out of the space. But the issue is, is I'll say these things and then people will go read their work but they're not really doing anything with it. You know, uh, Paul Potrack, Robin Jones do awesome stuff. I mean, it was kind of disappointing when I found out that they were talking about macro or micro politics and power dynamics, because admittedly I found some of their work after I went down my own rabbit hole on that. And that kind of showed some of the bad tendencies I developed as a strength coach. You look at somebody else that's working in that space and instead of being like, yes, that's awesome. I should reach out to them. At first I was like, they're doing this too. I need to do something else. And that was a toxic attitude, I think, that I got from our profession because we often compete instead of looking to expand the pie instead. And after I sat back from it, I'm like, no, this is great. This is great research to continue to strengthen our argument of why we need to look at the messy realities of coaching. Um, you know, external, like, so th there's other people inside of the field. You know, I can sit here and list all this stuff that you learn from a training standpoint from people like Zatsiorski. Um, you know, all the classics, Verkashansky, but in terms of true mentors, Eric, here's the answer. I never really had one. I never had somebody that from the minute I got in the field, put their arm around me and was like, here you go, buddy. Here's what books to read. Here's what articles to read. Here's how you should approach your career. If anything, I had it the opposite way. I had people saying, you're 30 years old. You shouldn't write a book. Uh, you shouldn't have a social media account. You shouldn't consider yourself a leader. Uh, why are you speaking on stage? I, I had a lot more hate on that front because we still exist in a field where, I don't know, it's kind of a suffering Olympics in strength and conditioning. You know, it's this idea that you're only a real strength coach if you're on the floor constantly um, and you die miserable, broken, unhappy. And even if you're 80 years old, you still got to be coaching, you know, God knows how many groups. Whereas you look at other fields, I, I don't think Steve Jobs just continued to make MacBooks. I don't think Bill Gates just handled all the, the coding in Microsoft. And so that's another area we're pretty aggressive, and I'll use that term purposely at Art of Coaching. We're really trying to change the way our field looks at these things because there's been so much fear, envy, insecurity. Man, like strength and conditioning, most of the world still doesn't know what we do. When I go speak for larger corporations, I, I've literally had them say, oh, so you guys are kind of like Jillian Michaels, huh? 
and I'll tell them what we do. And some people like in Wells Fargo or Microsoft, and I'm not trying to name drop on that front. I'm just trying to say like these bigger organizations don't know we exist. And I would like, they just be like, tell us what you do again. Oh, that's a real field. And I'm like, bro, not only is it a real field, but coaches will get on and spend hours arguing about the type of squat, you know? And so I'm just trying to get our field to think a little bit bigger because I was in those places at one point where it's just compete, compete, compete. And it doesn't lead to anywhere good in your career. So I, I look at different mentors now. I look at people in other industries, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Jay-Z. Jay-Z was a rapper who then owned his own record label and is now the first billionaire in hip hop. Now, if he was a strength coach, people would say he's a sellout. They'd say, oh, you, you do this and this now. You're not still rapping. I don't think anybody questions Jay-Z's ability to rap, right? Lin-Manuel Miranda makes Hamilton at, you know, in his 30s. I don't think a bunch of Broadway people were like, oh, you're too young. You shouldn't be writing Broadway musicals. So I know it sounds rude, but I don't really look at strength and conditioning anymore for mentors. I look at fields that have been around way longer and people that celebrate the success of others because they want everybody in their field to rise up and do bigger and better things. And our field's just not there yet as a, total, as a whole. Yeah. You know, I listen to you and think a lot about mentors and, you know, and I believe that as, as in any field, uh, we seek mentors, whether just from a guidance standpoint. And I think, you know, a testament to what you've done is that by lack of saying, by lack of having a, a true mentor in the field, it's forced you to kind of expand your, your lens and what you've, and you've looked and, and kind of built this, this, um, this content on a very broad, um, holistic level. So um, that is, that is a true positive and you've kind of found a number of mentors that in our field we maybe wouldn't look at um, consistently and you know and it comes through and when you communicate that um, that you've learned a lot about that um, about about strength and conditioning through uh, through all these different areas so well yeah because I mean I, I saw you bring up a good point I saw some ugly realities right like at the beginning when I was in the team setting, even as a GA, you feel like you belong, right? There's this, all right, as long as you're interested in training and whatever, which I've always been, you know, it's great. But then all of a sudden, I remember 2015, I was offered a job in the NFL and we had already committed elsewhere. So I didn't take it. And I saw the ugly realities of our field. The minute there were rumors that I was going to take this job, my inbox was filled of all these people that were all of a sudden my friends, right? They wanted to work together. They wanted to do this. They wanted to do that. And then the minute they heard I didn't take that job, these friends disappear. So I felt like all in one short 34, you know, or let's call it 15 year span, not 34 years. Um, that's how old I am. But I've been accepted by our field, outcasted by our field, you know, challenged by our field. And really, I think it's because our field doesn't really know what it wants to be yet. I think that so many coaches feel like they've got to take this big team job or they've got to open up this huge facility. And there's not many other fields that have been around a long time that pigeonhole themselves like that. There are many ways to become a great strength coach. And it doesn't know any age. It doesn't know any one sector. It doesn't know any one thing other than diverse circumstances and an open mind. And if you can get those things locked in, generally, you're going to have an okay career in time as long as you surround yourself by others like that. Yeah, I know. At the NSCA, we connect a lot with young coaches who are pursuing um, you know, the field in a very glorified kind of dream job sense, you know, and, yeah. and what you talk about is, you know, it's that dream job may not be 
in the big leagues or in the NFL, you know, you can make that wherever you're at. Um, and it's more your internal process. So in terms of what you're searching for as a young, as a young coach in this field, um, look internally is what I'm, what I'm taking kind of from what you're saying. And, and I think that's such yep. a powerful message because it's really hard to do when you're 18, 19, or, or you're, you're in college and you're thinking about, man, I need, I need a paycheck or I need medical benefits. Uh, you know, you're, you're working, um, very, uh, looking at these, these concrete career factors and not really looking at your process. And I think it takes a few years to really, uh, appreciate those things on a little on, Yeah. I mean, that's normal. <laughs> I mean, as a, even when I was an intern or a GA, I worried about two things. Was I going to get my training in that day and how much coaching experience would I get, you know, in those groups. Right. And then the tertiary to that, like what I was going to put in the crock pot in the morning. Cause you'd have to show up at four 30, right. Do the whole there by five set up, run a group by six, lift groups at six, nine, one, and three, yada, 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 do all those things. And then all of a sudden you start realizing, all right, I've been in this field six, seven, eight years. I might want to have a family. Oh my God. I've done two unpaid internships in a GA where I made 10 K that's awesome. But now I'm barely making more than $30,000 a year. That's not enough to support myself. What? I signed a contract that you can fire me at any time. What? I can't go speak or write a book because you own intellectual property. What? And so I found all these things to be true in my life. And eventually I just told my wife, I'm like, yo, we've got to do our own thing. We've got a period. If anybody hears anything I say, it's this. And we talk about this in our valued course. Why would you periodize your athletes programs, but not periodize your career and not periodize your learning? So we would start to see all these harmful things that we were getting in. We were only going to strength and conditioning conferences. We were only doing things in our field. We were only doing like, it was just like, it was scary. It was almost incestuous. So I'm like, no, no, no. We're going to start going to other conferences, getting around other professions. Um, we're going to start building something of our own. You know, that way, you know, again, begin with the end in mind, not just in your programming, but in your life. And so that way, great. If we want to take a job, we can, but nobody's ever going to own my intellectual property. You know, I've been in that situation before. I self-published conscious coaching. I, I own that. You know, if I had sold that to a publisher, they could do whatever they want with it. I'd look at contracts that if I made presentations at an old job, they owned it. Um, if all of a sudden we didn't win, even if I got everybody stronger and injury rates were down, I'm fired. Well, you'd be nuts to continue down that path. So we looked at, yeah, there's a time for that, but we call it the three E's. Of, of your career, execute, expand, and evolve. The execute stage is that early stage where just eat it. Do your internships, do your GA, get, get all the technical skills you can. Expand is that next part of your career. Great. Now are you looking to take a head job or a manager job or a director job? Are you looking to do something else within the leadership space of what you do beyond just sets and reps? Because there's only so many times you're going to be able to boil up Prilipin's chart, there's only so many times you're going to be able to say, hey, what's ground contact time for this? Yes, the research always evolves. I, I know everybody loves that quote, but training principles stay pretty much the same. Ground-based, ground multi-joint, multi-planar, good, no-nonsense training generally is going to reign supreme. Let's not, over, let's not act like this is rocket science, right? And then eventually you have to evolve. And evolving for us was saying, all right, we've got to think long-term. You know, I understand coaching. I'm going to continue to study it. I'm going to understand training and to continue to study it. But I want to learn not just how to be a tactician, but also a leader 
and then also a little bit of an entrepreneur because coaches are already entrepreneurs. You solve problems daily. That's all an entrepreneur does. You know, if, and if you don't think you do, you're wrong, you know, because people think, oh, I don't have to sell myself and I don't think coaching is sales. Sure it is. Every day you are promoting or selling the benefit of 100 pounds on your back or an athlete's back for them to get stronger, faster, more durable. Every day you're trying to promote why they should go uh, to bed earlier, why they should eat better. So it's just the cognitive dissonance of this moral superiority our field has versus what it really does. No, you're, you're educators, you're salespeople, you're entrepreneurs, you're problem solvers, you're a leader. Quit, quit narrowly defining your scope of the weight room because that's not helping our field. Yeah. So you touched on the career periodization and, you know, when we started uh, exchanging texts a few weeks back, you know, you'd posted something about that on one of our Facebook groups and it really connected with me. One other thing you said was begin with the end in mind and create alternate strategies when asymmetries and imbalances become evident or limiting. Uh, and, and you said it in a career context versus the training context that you would normally take that quote. And I, I saw it kind of come full circle and that you're learning from all these different uh, fields and professions, but we can take strength and conditioning and apply that uh, back towards career. And it goes the other way as well. So there's lessons and knowledge in what we do that is so valuable um, to the world as a whole in general. And, and, and looking at it that way uh, really connected with me and, and, honestly, probably the reason we're here on this podcast right now, um, just started communicating with you that way. Um, so I really, that means a lot because that's like, that's the only, if you're asking like, what, what's your hidden? If somebody's like, what's this guy's hidden agenda? You know what it is? It's exactly what you said. I, I find it hard to see all these other fields that have gone out and cross pollinated, right? Like you look at somebody like Jocko Willink, right? Served our country, right? Navy SEAL. Amazing. Well, now Jocko goes, as do other retired SEALs and members of the military, they go out and now serve uh, corporations and communities. You have academics that have written books like Angela Duxworth, things like that, grit, right? She goes out and will give TED Talks and uh, work with organizations. Same with a Simon Sinek. Yet, who does that in SNC? And so when I, got, when I went and spoke at Microsoft and they said, well, what does a strength coach do? You're not what we expected. We thought you were going to be you know, a workout guy or a Jillian Michaels. I remember telling my wife right then, I would like to show the world that we're more than that. And yet it's funny because then when I would go speak and somebody would see a picture of me in a button down speaking in a large audience or whatever, they'd be like, oh, this guy's a sellout. I'm like, hey, I'm trying to show the world that strength and conditioning is more than weight room people. Like, can we not all get on that same train? Because guess what? It, it benefits us if we have a brand where people know that we don't just count reps, that we don't just do the weights, that we actually lead and manage people. But again, it's, it's so odd because I remember reaching out to Adam Grant. He wrote the book Originals. And I was like, listen, like, do you get a lot of stuff from your peers? Like, do you get trouble because you go speak? And he's like, well, sure, you're always going to have that. But we need people that expand and show, the, show what we do at a bigger scale. So I just wish strength coaches would understand there's tremendous value of being on the floor, but there's also tremendous value of sharing your knowledge and insight elsewhere. And then our field always wants to kind of go down. Well, yeah, well, you know, we're humble and we think we should be in the background. It's like, is it really that or is it you just scared? Because you don't have to have all the answers. You just have to be willing to share what you know. 
I don't think there's this unwritten rule that the only people on speaking circuits and that go help corporations know everything. I don't think Simon Sinek or Duxworth or Jocko would say, yeah, yeah, I know everything, whatever. No, they just go out there and they're willing to share their perspective. But our field acts as if that's such a bad thing. And it's, it's one of the most toxic things I see. And I'm very outspoken about it because it's like, we're going to continue to suffer as a profession as we continue to isolate ourselves. And then what are we going to do? We're going to sit here and argue about, you know, we're going to go watch presentations at conferences that argue three different ways to teach speed ad nauseum. I think people want more out of life and coaching than that. Yeah. So Brett, I was listening to your art of coaching podcast recently, and you were discussing some coach specific interactions of how to deal with conflict and disagreement um, in the field of strength and conditioning or specifically on a staff. Um, and in addressing that, you highlighted, uh, you know, how someone is in one environment isn't necessarily how they are in another environment. Um, and just talking to you off the air, you know, we were, we were discussing, you know, this really speaks to the human element and dynamic nature of coaching personalities specifically how our environment impacts us at various stages of our career and, and, and really with what's going on in our lives. We, could you kind of share that perspective with us? Yeah, I think the important thing people need to understand first is context. You know, context is defined in the literature as a situation, circumstances, and setting in which an event, or in this case, communication occurs. And so, you know, the one-size-fits-all era is over. You know, for people that say, hey, I got a difficult athlete or, hey, I got a difficult coach or, hey, I got this. I'm like, well, first of all, how are you defining difficult? Because very rarely do we find that somebody is just, quote unquote, difficult in every context. You might have an athlete that's a pain in the butt in the weight room, but they're probably not like that around their friends. Um, you know, I was talking to a good friend of mine that works in the NBA. He's like, when I do player meetings, I go meet them on the basketball court when they're shooting hoops. I don't ask them to come to my office. He's like, immediately that invites a more defensive context. It's a formalized setting. You know, it's almost like an interview process. If he goes, if I can go shoot hoops with them and kind of do this stuff indirectly, that's, that's, that's a lot more powerful. And I'd say, yeah, that's, I mean, that's ethical influence right there. Um, you know, and, and a form of even manipulation. But our field thinks that manipulation and influence and all these things are bad words. No, you manipulate things all the time. You manipulate volume. Um, you, in your training programs, you manipulate the dial on your thermometer in your house to adjust hot or cold. Um, you have to do the same thing. So you have to have what's called contextual propriety. You have to be able to say, what's the context of this situation? What are the behaviors I'm observing? What are my own behaviors? Because again, it's amazing how most coaches think that they're not the problem. It's always the athlete or somebody else. When in reality, if you ask 90% of coaches when they, when, they, when they went to a workshop where they were videotaped, and the way that they communicated and their body language and all those things were broken down and assessed. How many do you think have actually gone to a workshop like that, Eric? Not a lot. Not a lot because they don't really, you know, you have people that say, well, we do that internally, right? And it's like, no, 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 no. Having, if you and I work on a staff together, Eric, and we have three other staff and we agree to videotape and assess one another and on communication and how well we listen and all those things, we're going to give biased answers because we all work together. You're not going to want to undermine the boss. The boss, you know, is going to have certain feedback towards. So at our apprenticeship workshops, we have people from all different professions and we have coaches get out in front and they're put in a scenario, Eric, and they've got to act out that scenario. Like we do in life. We act out scenarios all the time. Military does war games. Uh, lawyers do mock juries. There's tons of situations where this happens. 
athletes go through walkthroughs, boxers shadow box invisible opponents. So then we video them interacting. Let's say it's four coaches in a situation where they're dealing with four different archetypes of personality. And then we put that on video and we give them a scoring sheet and say, hey, rank the body language, rank the cadence, the tonality, the rate of speech, all these things. And we, we see some honest interactions. So I think coaches have to understand that when they're saying I'm dealing with a difficult parent, athlete, whatever, you're usually the problem. And I'm included in that. We, none of us are as good as we think we are. I see it on podcasts. I'll go on podcasts where I get interviewed and people will ask the question and it's very clear they don't listen because they have like all these questions that they want to ask, but then they don't have a conversation, right? And I can always tell because somebody's just like, cool, next one, cool, next one, or they get caught off guard. And it's taught me as a podcaster as well to be like, I actually need to listen to what they're saying because my questions might be a good plan, right? It might be good periodization, but there's a difference between periodization and programming. Periodization is the long-term plan. Programming is what you do daily and weekly. There's flexibility within that plan. Hence, why everything art of coaching-wise is periodization for people and the relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Um, podcasting is a, is a challenge in itself. And I, I think it's one of those things that, um, you know, as coaches, we are very, um, you have to have a voice. You know, your voice is your tool. You know, and then taking that to uh, it's it's interesting and listening to your podcast. It's interesting now when I listen to podcasts, I'm listening to the host as well as the as well as the uh, subject matter expert that's that's being interviewed. And um, you know, you definitely have a new appreciation for um, for (laughs) for the for the newscasters and the and the anchors that you're seeing and just the skill set that they bring in terms of clearly presenting information and uh but with that said um you write and there's a lot of strength and conditioning coaches that uh engage in writing practices whether it be blogs articles book talk about communicating um in a different way than just verbally and getting information out there sharing information in our field what is the value of of writing or writing a book for for strength coaches in the field. A lot of people aspire to do that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is everybody needs to understand the value of skin in the game. Man, is it dangerous to think that you're growing if you don't have skin in the game. I think it's incredibly dangerous when people talk about how many books they read, how many podcasts they listen to, how many clinics they go to, yet they produce nothing. That's scary because how do they learn? right? You start having this bias of thinking that just because it's the difference between exposure and experience, just because I see or I bear witness to an influencing event doesn't mean I know how to do it, right? I can watch a million surgeries. I don't know how to perform one. So I think it's always interesting when coaches share opinions on things or feedback that they've never, that they've never even done. So it's like, oh, this article was dumb or this book was dumb or this. Well, okay. Can you write, show us your example. You know, don't, don't just solve the problems with things. Show us your example. Like it, it's almost like the coach that says, all oh, these people, they, they write crap programs. This isn't a good program. Okay, great. Do you have examples of your programs? Oh, no, no, no. Well, I can't share that. Well, we, we create a culture of faceless, nameless critics when people don't have to inwardly reflect and put something out into the world. I, I just, you know, it's skin in the game. 
you know, could you name a time, Eric, would you name a time where you would trust the advice of a quote unquote expert if you have not bore witness to any of their work whatsoever? Yeah, no, you're right. You, you wouldn't. Right. And, and so that's where it's, again, it's a contrasting dynamic because if you pay attention to our field enough, on one end, they'll say, oh, you shouldn't be on social media. You shouldn't do this. You should just do your job and be quiet. But then on the other end, you know, they'll sit there and say, well, show your work. Well, which one am I supposed to do now? Because if I do nothing, I'm hiding. If I share stuff, I'm a sellout. And if I don't do anything, then I'm lukewarm. How are we supposed to win? You know, what are we supposed to do? And so I think there's tremendous value in it because most people, if they put skin in the game, will realize there's plenty they don't know. There's plenty that they, I mean, I remember writing conscious coaching, like there's so many things I know how to elocute verbally. And I know intuitively that I know this conscious competence, but then I had to write it in a way that <laughs> was out there for the world. You know, it had to appease some people that wanted the research. So we had 70 some odd articles in it, but at the same time, we didn't want it to be so technical that nobody would want to read it. You know what I mean? And so, cause there are people that both ways, Hey man, I wish you would have had more of this. And then other people would say, hey, I wish you would add less of this. So you realize there's no peasing everybody, <laughs> right? If you look up Miles Davis, arguably one of the greatest jazz musicians of all time on YouTube, then you look at one of his greatest songs, there's still bound to be thousands of thumbs downs. Yet the people that gave it a thumbs down and said, I hate this music, do you think they've ever once composed a jazz song or played an instrument? <laughs> so when we look at what we need to fix in, in strength and conditioning, it's that internal toxicity and that fear of us looking our own self in the eye of saying, we need to get over this and we need to put work out there because there's tremendous reflection. There's tremendous uh, exposure, vulnerability. Um, all those things need to be faced for us to be a healthier profession. Yeah. You, you bring so much context when you speak and, you, and you, you bring a lot of information that really gets to the core of the person, not just the coach and not just the, the act of going out there and leading a stretch or, or implementing a lift. You know, one thing I listened to the last podcast you were on with the NSCA and you said that if you weren't a strength coach, you would have pursued criminal profiling. Yeah. Um, and, um, and one thing, you know, talking about, we talked about environmental, um, kind of that dynamic, uh, environmental personality factors and context related to coaching. And in the book, you talk about archetypes and putting people, categorizing people based on kind of their core principles. And that kind of connects with that criminal profiling mentality. How do those two come together? And so when you're, when you're kind of decoding and putting people in these archetypes, but then realizing the context of their situation, you know, how does that shape together into a positive and constructive model for that athlete in that moment? And, you know, what's the process of finding that? Yeah. So again, archetype is just, and I say this in the book, archetype is just a starting point. It's a scaffolding. They exist in everyday life. Um, we see them in movies. There's heroes, there's villains. Um, we see the neighbor that always cuts his lawn, even when he doesn't need to. I have a neighbor that this guy he is the archetypical like Ned Flanders. He's always doing something out there. I think he was power washing his house the other day. So in three days, this guy's power washing his house, cut his yard three times and, you know, done his garage. You know, we have the archetype on social media, people that want to be combative, people that are this. So, you know, archetypes are a starting point. You know, there's been some people that say, well, 
you know, you can't look at archetypes. That's assigning labels. Uh, yeah, and we do that as human beings. Um, I, I state very clearly in my book and a number of other work that nobody is ever saying you just coach off an archetype. I never once suggested everybody labels everybody uh, in one way, in a static way, that everybody on your uh, team is just this. Archetypes are fluid. In one environment, I may, you know, portray one kind of pattern or characteristics. So I'll give you an example. If I go speak, right, for the NSCA or anybody else, I'm pretty gregarious. I'll be charismatic. I'll be outspoken. When I'm at home, I am very reclusive. I do not want to be bothered. I like to just keep to myself, you know, all those kinds of things. Like I'll actively search for a park in which there's nobody around as opposed to anything else, right? When I'm around my in-laws, Eric, all right, you know, let me ask you this. When you, are you married? Yes. Do you speak to your in-laws the same way you would some old college buddies? <laughs> Absolutely not. Right. So that is a, a version of impression management or archetypical demonstrations of different behavior. It's tied to the self-image. And our self-image changes depending on which the environment we're around. Do you think in five years, a lot of people are going to be very proud that they hoarded toilet paper during COVID-19? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when people say, well, environment doesn't dictate behavior, I say, look around you. What's the world doing right now? They're engaging in uh, behavior that is completely driven by the environment. You know, when people say communication doesn't matter, I'd say, well, I'd argue that right now communication matters more than ever. So, and are we communicating well as a society? Probably not. Yet we have people that say we don't need to work on it. So archetypes give you a starting point and it's a big part of chaos theory. So if you look at the research and chaos theory, uh, you know, a lot of this kind of talks about, you know, chaos can be described as an intricate mixture of order and disorder, regularity and irregularity, right? Like there's these patterns of behavior that people express throughout daily life that individually are hard to predict. Now we can look at the law of large numbers and, and things can be more predictive, but the relationships between people are very complex. It's like trying to predict the weather. You might see certain patterns, but you never really know in totality what everybody's gonna do, right? And those irregularities manifest themselves as broad categories of archetypes, things that we see, right? But there's an endless variety of these things. So what coaches have to understand is you have to be able to understand that coaching is complex. It is not a rational, knowable sequence of events where people just come in and da, 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 they do everything you say. And if they don't, well, they're problematic. No, like you've got to be able to address these things. And so I think archetypes just give people a good starting point to hopefully understand we all exhibit certain traits. They're all fluid. Nobody's one way. I mean, there was this coach and he's at a big time university and he asked me a smart aleck question one time where he goes, all right, Mr. Conscious Coaching, you wrote the book on archetypes. Tell me how to coach all my guys right now. And I go, excuse me? And he goes, if everybody is an archetype, then tell me how to coach everybody. And I go, time out. First of all, I don't even know your athletes. So how could I tell you how to coach them? Second of all, I never once said that everybody is one archetype. Third of all, even if I could tell you which archetypical characteristics your athletes have, I can only tell you that in one domain, your weight room. It's your job as a coach to get to know them at a deeper, well, I don't have time for that. Well, let me ask you something. Do you ask them how they've been eating, their soreness? Do you ask them about their goals? Yeah. Well, then why can't you figure out personality characteristics? It sounds like you just want to be lazy at your job. But 
that it's scary, Eric. It's really scary that we pass over these things and we think we're really good at them. Like it's okay to admit you suck. Like we all suck at it. Like we need more safe places for coaches to fail at this kind of stuff. I mean, look at your clinics, man. Look at your clinics when you ask somebody to do a, and it's not just your clinics, it's anybody, ask somebody to do um, a practical. How many people actually volunteer to take place or take part in these practicals half the time? Yeah, no, I, I agree it's, with that. Yeah. It's so, we're so scared to fail. And it's like, we're lifelong learners, but we're scared to fail. Got it. <laughs> like, it's okay. Like, like, risk sucking at something. It, it'll actually take you a lot further. No, I agree. And it, and it loops back with, you know, we talked about writing and, and putting yourself out there is a huge part of this profession, whether, you know, whether, you know, for your personality way, it might be challenging just to get up and lead a 10 minute warm up, And on the other end, you know, you need to build yourself up to where you can speak knowledgeably for an hour in front of a crowded room. And that, that makes you so much better. I know from my experience, yeah. and I, I'm sure you can speak to this, it's when you get up in front of a room and share uh, for better or for worse, right? Like, you, you know, you're going to fumble on your words or you're going to make a mistake, but that you get so much back in return for what you put out there. You're the one in the arena. The, the people that I don't think deserve credit are people that hide and act like I'm too busy or I'm, again, this self-righteous thing. We have this world where some of the world's most powerful people engage on social media and put their ideas out there and write books. Really? Because you're the head strength coach of a pro sport team or college sport team or whatever, you're too good to share it. And hiding behind the, well, I'm humble, it's not about me, is just such a cop-out. Because that insinuates that anybody that shares is then not humble. That's, that's not how that works. We can't tell an athlete, come and compete, come and compete, strive to make yourself a better person, do all these things, and then the next minute chastise them if they compete too hard. You know, I mean, that just like, where, where's this disparity, you know? And so I just think that, yeah, I, I, it, it concerns me, but hopefully it'll get better. I just think it's, it's a young field. Um, if we're, if we're gracious, strength and conditioning has really only been a profession 60 to 70 years. And that's if we're gracious. And I think it has a long ways to go until it really knows what it wants to be. I think we're just in this awkward teenage stage, uh, because all we've known is, well, open your own facility, get a pro job, get a college job. So many other ways to do this job. Jump ahead another 60 to 70 years. Where are we going <laughs> to yeah. be? What does the future of strength and conditioning look like for you? Yeah, 60 to 70 years, I would be a world-class if I acted like I know what we're going to do then. Um, but I hope we just, uh, I hope in the next five, if not less, we really embrace more on the communication science and human dynamics and sociology of coaching. Um, when people call it a soft skill, I don't think they're really in tune with the amount of research that's been done in psychology and communication and all those. I mean, there's a reason uh, people get degrees in these things. Uh, the, the research about communication uh, behavioral dynamics, uh, sociobiology far predates anything we have in strength and conditioning. So I'm still very confused as to why we call these things the soft science, because the art of coaching is the science of connecting. And we very much have a lot of literature on how we build uh, relational dynamics and influence and persuade people. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that's where it's going. Again, I'm completely biased. Um, you know, I've started a business to help teach these things because I want to give to the field. I also hope we think bigger picture. I hope we're worried a lot less about 
you know, arguing about exercises, sets, and reps and looking at more of like what a full-scale view of what it means to be a true coach and leader and how to have a fruitful career and how to, you know, ask better questions than just what book should I read and what exercise is best and what training program's best. We need to be more self-aware of context and we've got to quit tearing each other down. I don't, I don't engage in Twitter debates anymore. Every day somebody sends me something that somebody wants me to engage in. I don't have time for that, man. You know what I mean? There was a time in my life where I loved that. It was like a battle rap thing because it was a chance for you to prove yourself. I, our field needs to be far less worried about proving itself. Just do your job, you know, and find other ways to expand the pie. If somebody makes it big as a coach, celebrate them. You know, at the same time, give, give the everyday coach. That's what we do on our podcast. <laughs> we don't interview millionaires, uh, billionaires, people that have these huge jobs. We interview real people going through real stuff and providing real solutions. And I think we need to celebrate that too. Just no more gatekeepers, no more ego, no more BS. Get beyond that and think bigger because this isn't how you tell your athletes to behave. You know, and, and we, we behave in a really childish manner sometimes. Yeah, I mean, th there's a lot to be said for celebrating the accomplishments around us. Um, that you talk about being a good person, you know, and it's like, that's, that's what it is. You know, it's just recognizing that good things are going on around you and celebrating, braiding that and being a part of that. Um, that's powerful. Uh, Brett Bartholomew, thank you for being on today. Uh, really appreciate it. Great conversation. Thank you. Um, yeah, appreciate you. Thanks, Eric. This was the NSCA coaching podcast sponsored by Sorenex exercise equipment for our listeners. We will include Brett's social media and contact info in the episode notes. We appreciate all of you tuning in and look forward to the next time. If you're new to this podcast and want to learn more about NSCA strength and conditioning certifications, you can get all the details at nsca.com slash certification. And to all of you listening, we appreciate your support. Again, if you like the podcast, make sure you subscribe wherever you download your podcast from, write us a review and keep listening in. Thank you. And I look forward to talking with you all soon. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.